Good morning. Let's find our seats and turn in our Bibles to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word and your spirit. Thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices, that you know us, that you know the situations that we are in. You are very aware. You are personably knowledgeable of all that is going on with us. Thank you for these letters to these churches. Help us to see you this morning as we look at these. Help us to see the, our own natures in the mirror of your word, that we may repent where we need to, that we may love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began to look at these two chapters in this book. These two chapters comprise the things that are. Remember that the outline that was given to the Apostle John was right in a book, the things that you have seen, that's chapter one, then you have the things that are, that is chapters 2 and 3, and then there will be the things that happen after these things, and that will be chapter 4 through the rest of the book. Last week, we began to look at the letters to the seven churches, and we looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we found that it is not enough to simply be doctrinally sound. You can be doctrinally correct and still miss the mark of being a church that is bringing praise and honor to the name of Christ. And we saw that the Ephesian church had left their first love. There were things that they had done in the beginning that they were no longer doing. And we didn't necessarily flesh that out a whole lot. I think that it is reasonable uh, to include that when you have a church that has lost its passion for Christ, two places where it's going to show up quickly. One will be evangelism. You don't speak of God as much. You don't speak of Christ as fervently simply because there's been a loss of affection. The second place that it will likely show up is going to be prayer. And so if you find yourself in a position of being prayerless and silent when it comes to what Jesus has done for you, then you may very well be in this place here where you have lost your first love, you've left your first love. The danger to that is that we know, and we'll see this as we continue to go on through these, through the letters to the seven churches, is that this is the only church which is given basically an ultimatum. Repent, or I'm gonna remove your lampstand. I will set you aside as a church. And so even as we think about some other churches that appear to be worse off than the church at Ephesus, 
they've got doctrinal issues. They've got false teaching going on. They have even, uh, you know, you have the reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Those churches aren't uh, dealt with as Ephesus was. And so we looked last week at Ephesus. This week, we're going to look at the next two. We're going to look at the church of Smyrna, and we're going to look at the church at Pergamum. So let's uh, look at chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna is the shortest of the letters, four verses. Smyrna was about 35 miles north of Ephesus. The city exists today. It would be the, the modern city of Izmir in Turkey. The city itself was destroyed in about 627 BC by the Lydians. And then it was rebuilt, it was imagined by Alexander the Great. Now the city was in a very picturesque setting. In fact, it was, it, it was called, the, it's, it was one of the most, considered to be one of the most beautiful of the cities of Asia. And so Alexander the Great, as he was going through and conquering in the area, he imagined rebuilding the city, and it was actually done by some of his descendants. The city was known as the Glory of Asia. And the streets, um, you know how you go into a lot of streets today? Uh, in our country, if you go to Boston, you, you know, the streets are narrow because it's an old city. And originally, they didn't have cars, and so they weren't building streets wide enough for cars. Now, you go to Washington, D.C., and what do you find? What, how are the streets laid out in Washington, D.C.? They're, they're very orderly because the city was designed that way. It was a designed city, at least the original city. Smyrna is that way. So when the city was rebuilt, it was rebuilt not exactly on the same site, but the streets were laid out and the buildings were built in such a way, the city resembled a large crown. So, and I, I, I heard some of the reactions here. You can start to see how there are all kinds of interplays going on here. In both between the church and the city, the, how the city views themselves, and how Jesus is going to deal with them as well. 
they claimed to be the birthplace of Homer, the guy who wrote the Iliad. And so they were uh, a prosperous city. Smyrna is the Greek word for myrrh. Myrrh was used in perfume, and it was also used for something else specifically. Anybody know what it was? What would you use myrrh for? Embalming. It was used as one of the spices for burial. And so again, there's a, there are a couple of recurring themes that are going to run through here. One is going to be crown. Another is going to be death. Death is, is, is prominent here. Smyrna, very early on in their modern, and when I say modern, I mean first century, in that context, was steeped in emperor worship. They had a temple dedicated to the emperor. They had a lot of temples to the emperor and to assorted deities. And there was a large Jewish population present in Smyrna. Now you remember from the book of Acts that originally there wasn't a lot of discord between the Jews and the Christians. In fact, uh, right after on the day of Pentecost, where did the Christians meet? Where were they meeting when they gathered together? They were gathering at the temple. And so you didn't have a lot of discord. Now that changed, and it didn't take terribly long for that to change. The Jews did not worship the emperor, at least not technically. And so because they kind of got a dispensation from Rome in where, wherein they were not persecuted for not worshiping the emperor. They made it very clear as time went on that Christianity was not a Jewish sect. It wasn't a Jewish spin-off. And so as time went on, you ended up having a lot of discord between the Jews and the Christians. And the Jews ended up becoming responsible for a good deal of persecution that was happening with the Christians. And so you've got a large Jewish population there in Smyrna. So as we follow the, the, the basic, remember we, last week we talked about there's, there's a basic outline that these letters follow. And the first you have the command to John and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? We've talked about that. That's, that's probably going to be the pastor for the church in Smyrna. Now it's interesting because um, some decades after John writes this letter, on, on behalf of, you know, as he's taking dictation from Jesus, there was a, um, a very, who became to be a very well-known man who was the pastor of this church for several decades, a number of decades, whose name was Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred in about 153, 155 AD. When he was, um, there's actually some records of his martyrdom, and he made the comment, uh, he was given the opportunity to recant and to, you know, uh, 
disavow Jesus and, and uh, swear allegiance to the emperor. And he made a comment, these 86 years, he has done me no harm. These 86 years I have served him. If you go back 86 years from 155, you're back actually well before the time that John is writing this letter. It is very possible that Polycarp is the angel of the church of Smyrna. And so, and a man who's later going to seal his testimony with his blood. And so to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. And now Jesus describes himself. And again, we see this in each of the letters. The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. Now, when he identifies himself as the first and the last, he is making no uncertain claim to deity. The first and the last is referring back to Isaiah. Three times in Isaiah, God refers to himself as the first and the last. You've got the, that's going to be Isaiah 41.4, Isaiah 44.6, Isaiah 48.12. And so he is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. The only one who can make that claim. Notice also how he introduces himself. He is the one who was dead. Literally, he became dead. And he has come to life. Now, when we look at that and we think of Jesus, he became dead when, how, where, why? That, that's, in, in volleyball, that is the easiest set shot you are ever going to get. <laughs> well, come on, I got to throw in an easy one. Otherwise, I'm just going to get. Okay. Yeah, I did anyway. He yielded up his life. Why? Out of obedience to accomplish our salvation, right? His death is the guilt offering. I don't know if you remember, but in the, in the Old Testament, when you looked at the offerings, the guilt offering was the only one that involved restitution. The only one. And so here you have his blood being offered on our behalf as, as our substitute as our atonement, and when did that occur? You don't have to have necessarily a date for that. Where did it occur? Let's do it that way. On the cross, right? And so you have all of those things. He became dead, and he has come back to life. Now, if you flip back, if you, in fact, you don't even need to flip. You can probably just look back to the left just a little bit and look at verse 17 in chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. 
And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Because he was the one who died and came back to life again, remember the resurrection is God the Father's stamp of approval, his good housekeeping stamp of approval on the sacrifice of Jesus. It was adequate. It was sufficient. It was proper. And therefore, death has no hold on him, and so God is able to raise him back to life, and he ascends and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. And, and because he has done that, he has the keys of death and of Hades. That's going to come out in another letter. But the fact of the matter is he has control of those things because he has power over those things. All of that is tied into the idea of he's the one who was dead and has come to life. Now, why is it... Why this church... When he to, 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 to use that introduction. I'm the one who was dead. And I'm come to, and I'm come to life. Why that introduction? That's exactly it. They're about to suffer. Jesus. He's a faithful high priest because he has suffered the things that we suffer. He has he known temptation. Right? And because he has known temptation, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Right? This ought to be, I'm hoping that this is just bringing up all kinds of connections for you when you look at the book of Hebrews where it talks about Jesus is better. He's the mediator of a better covenant. He's a better high priest. He is a, he's just better. He's better at everything. And so again, when Jesus is going to, to, to <laughs> look, you're about to suffer. Unto death. Jesus isn't asking them to go anywhere he hasn't gone himself. And also to make sure that they know that he, the one who has suffered all of those things, is with them. And again, well, let's, ju let's just keep going. When we got to, when we looked at Ephesus, it was, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, right? He cut straight to it with Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now let's just stop there. Tribulation is the word thlipsis. It is the standard word for affliction or tribulation in the New Testament. Now the word literally means pressure. And it was the word, it's not used in the Bible in this way, but in Greek, it was used to describe 
the pressure that was created in order to crush the olive to get olive oil or to crush the grape to get grape juice. That, that, that process there, that is the idea of pressure. It has, uh, in one way, it's got the idea of being in a very narrow space. The idea is you're being squeezed and you're being squeezed hard. It's not comfortable. It is, you know, quite the opposite. And this word for poverty is not the normal word for being poor. This is abject poverty. This is one you don't have enough to make your, your basic needs for life. And so when you would see a beggar, uh, you know, begging for alms because he has nothing, that's this guy. That is this. And so it's, it's, it's basically you have nothing. And so as a church, the marks of their church are we are being squeezed, we are being oppressed, we are being afflicted, and they are dead broke. When it comes to financial blessing, they ain't got it. And when you look at them, they're pretty much the polar opposite of Laodicea, right? Laodicea, they were rich, and yet spiritually, what was their position? What was their condition? You think you're rich, and you think you've got all these things, and you don't realize that you're blind and poor and destitute and naked. These people, on the other hand, when Jesus evaluates them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. These people have treasure in heaven. These people have got spiritual bankroll. They don't have the world's goods, but they have God's approval. I know your poverty, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And the emphasis there, frankly, is when, when you have the possessive pronoun there, your, that's adding emphasis there. I know your, and it's singular, addressing all of them as a group. Your tribulation, your poverty. And I know the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, probably the worst thing that you could, the worst accusation that you could raise against a Jew would be that they are blaspheming. People who wouldn't even mention the name Yahweh for fear of pronouncing it wrong or bringing some shame to it and thus violating, um, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. So how is it that you have people 
who are making a claim. Let's back up. That's a bad question. Let's ask it this way. How did the Jews view themselves? What was their identity? Children of Abraham and God's chosen people. They have a unique relationship with God. Now, when Jesus comes on scene and he is dealing with the Jews, primarily the Jewish leadership, what was the, why was Jesus always in such opposition to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? Okay, they're hypocrites, why? Okay, so in one way that they are, they are laying burdens on the people, remember that they had a whole bunch of extra traditions that went beyond the actual requirements of the law. But why else was he at odds with them so regularly? Okay, so they're misrepresenting God. They've made their own religion. And that, again, goes back to what it is that was important to them. Remember that Jesus accused them on a number of occasions. You, you're, you've set aside the law of God, and in its place, you've placed the traditions of men. Remember, um, honor your father and mother. Literally, the idea is you take care of your father and mother when it comes to that stage of life. And a Pharisee could escape that by saying that what I have has been dedicated to God. Now, just because it was dedicated to God doesn't mean he lost possession of it. It was still in his hand. But because it had been dedicated to God, therefore it was not free for him to use to take care of his parents. Thus, they are setting aside the law and they are upholding their tradition. So you have that. Another reason that Jesus was at odds with them was that they refused him. They knew who he was. When Jesus told the, the, the parable of the landowner who was, he, he sent a representative he sent somebody back to, to collect what was due him because they were the tenants on the property. And he, was, he sent somebody for the payment, right? And they beat this one and they killed this one. And finally the landowner says, I will send my son. They will honor him. And you'll remember the son comes and they said, this is the heir. If we kill him, then we will assume the inheritance. And as Jesus goes through and tells that parable, what did it say about the Pharisees? They knew he was talking about them. They knew exactly who he was. They knew he was the son of God. What he said proved it. What he did in their presence proved it. Who else can make someone born blind be able to see? 
who else can do the things that he did? Who else could speak with the authority that he did? Richard. Sure. There was no question in their mind who he claimed to be. And frankly, there's no question in their mind who he was. And they refused him. We will not have this man to rule over us, not this one. And so when you have, Jesus also told them, if Abraham, you're not really sons of Abraham because Abraham rejoiced. He longed to see my day. And if you were truly his sons, then you would rejoice to see my day. And so he's drawing a distinction here. this morning. He draws a distinction. It is not enough to be a Jew ethnically. If you're going to be a true Jew, you need to do, you need to be a true follower of God. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to acknowledge the Father, then you've got to acknowledge the Son. You cannot disavow the Son of God and avow the Father. You can't do it. It's impossible. And so what is happening is, is that as the Jews are now turning and they are being anti, they're not being ambivalent toward Jesus. They are being directly contrary to him and they're being contrary to those who follow him. And so the way Jesus puts it is they still have a synagogue and remember the synagogue is the is the basically the Hebrew equivalent of ecclesia or church, the word that's used for church. It's basically the equivalent. And so they aren't a synagogue of God. Because they are in opposition to him, they're a synagogue of Satan. And so they identify as being Jews. But in reality, they are not. They have turned away from God by disavowing Christ. And so, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know the blasphemy by those, and the blasphemy here is, is basically going to be reviling that is leveled against the Christians by those who oppose Christ. Verse 10, do not fear, there's two commands here, 
in the exhortation for them. There's two commands. The first one, do not be afraid. Do not fear. The other one is down a little further where it is, be faithful unto death. Those are the two commands. So do not be afraid. All right, why should we not be afraid? Because you're about to suffer more. And in fact, this one is going to be intense. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, listen up, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So first of all, where is this attack coming from? Who's behind it? The devil is. The devil's behind it. Who's going to carry it out? Well, that would be whoever there in Smyrna. Again, the Jews aren't the only oppressors of the Christians. The Romans are doing their fair share too. And in fact, when you talk about being thrown into prison, that's not the Jews. That's Rome. Now, Roman prison was different than our prisons. Our prisons, you go to prison after you've been tried and convicted. It wasn't that way in Rome. Rome, you went to prison until you had your trial, and then most likely you were either going to be fined or you were going to be executed. That was pretty much the, the choices. They didn't do confinement as a punishment. It was basically, we're, it's a holding place for you. And so, guys, you've been suffering. There's more coming. The devil himself is going after you. And the purpose is that you may be tested. Now, this word is basically the word that's used for to assay. Do you know what a saying is? A-S-S-A-Y-I-N-G. That's, that's where you're, it's, you, you, you assay a metal to test it for purity. And so you're, you're testing it, you're proving it. That's the idea here. Uh, for, so for instance, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, you know, where it says, test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's this kind of idea here. And so they are going to get squeezed. When you, squeeze a tube, when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what comes out? Toothpaste, right? Because whatever is inside the tube is what is going to come out when you squeeze it. And that's the idea here. Your faith is going to be tested. And it's for 10 days. Now, there is a lot of back and forth on this 10 days. There is um, that it's a literal 10 days. And that is possible. That is very possible. That you can go back, for instance, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel and his friends uh, ask that they would not have to eat the king's meat and the king's food, rather give us vegetables and water. And how long was that testing period? 10 days. Ten days, is that a long time or a short time? 
That is exactly the point. It depends on what's happening. Oh, yeah. When you, uh, okay, um, anybody ever had a kidney stone? Ah, I see some people who've had kidney stones. How long is 10 days? It is. It feels like forever. And so could it be just that it's a short time? Yes, that's possible too. There are some who have tried to say, you know, this represents the 10 uh, different uh, persecutions that were brought by Rome. Um, it could be that it's, again, just a short period of time. I think that's going to be Genesis 25, 44, where it talks about uh, Jacob or, oh, the servant has gone up to find a wife for Isaac. And uh, Laban comes back with, well, you know what, maybe... You know, she could stay here for, you know, for a little while, like 10 days. So that same, that same type of idea. I, I tend to think that it's, it's a short period of time. Long enough to feel like there's no end. But there is an end. And that's the message. You're fixing to suffer. It is going to be intense but it has an end. I control that end. And your part is to be faithful even to the point of death. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Now this word crown is the word Stephanos. And yes, we do get the name Stephen from that word. The Stephanos was the wreath, the garland that would be placed on the head of a victor in the athletic games. It is also the same word used to describe the thorns placed on Jesus' head. That crown you be faithful to death. I'll give you the victor's crown of life. And so you be faithful, period. You don't give up. You don't deny me. You don't grow weary. You hold the course. You be faithful to death. Notice, does he have any accusation to bring against these people? Everything is encouragement. Everything is hold the course. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, we haven't run into the second death yet. And we're not going to run into it until we get to chapter 20. The second death is when those that are not followers of Christ, when they're judged and when they're thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death. Notice, 
There's no problem. Look, we are all, unless Jesus comes back soon, we're all going to experience the first death. We'll all experience that. The second death has no hold on us. There's no need to fear it. There's no need to have any concern about it whatsoever. This word shall not be hurt. Not is the strongest negation in the Greek language. You can't get more opposite than that. So if you overcome, you'll not be hurt by the second death. What is the implication? If you give up because you're not truly redeemed, second death has got a hold on you. And so again, the stakes are high. This isn't something that you can take or leave. Questions regarding Smyrna? Fifty-five? Did I say wrong? I'm sorry. Thank you. Genesis twenty-four fifty-five. All right. Now we're going to move sixty-five miles north and east a little bit to get to Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this: I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now Pergamum also exists today. It is going to be the modern city of Bergama in Turkey. It's at the confluence of three rivers. It was in a good strategic area. It was the literary center of Asia. The library in Pergamum had 200,000 volumes, was second only to Alexandria in Egypt. In fact, the name Pergamum is where they got the name parchment. So when you talk about parchment for being able to write on, that's actually named after Pergamum. It is also known 
in the, in, in the, in the time for emperor worship. And, uh, you know, here's one here for your, uh, since I know we've got a doctor in the house, you know the medical sign where it's got the staff and the snake going up around that? That was the symbol for the god Asclepius, the god of healing in the Greek, in the, in the Roman culture. And so that actually still sticks around even to this day. And so here you have Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. And this is now Jesus represents himself, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, when you hear the term, and actually it literally is the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one, what, in, what I hope something immediately comes to mind. What would immediately come to mind? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, Jesus has a two-edged sword, and if you go back to chapter 1, where is this sharp two-edged sword? It's coming out of his mouth. So, what is this representing? It's representing the word of God. When we get into chapter 20, Jesus is going to make war. In fact, he's going to have an whole, a whole army with him. A whole army with him. And that army is going to accomplish how much? That's right. Zippity-doo-dah, nothing. They're going to be there. Jesus is going to execute judgment with the sword that's coming out of his mouth. And so here you have the word of God. So, Pergamum, I know where you dwell. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, does Satan have a literal throne built in Pergamum? No, although there is something about Satan that is very different than God. Where is God? He's everywhere. Where is Satan? One place at a time. Satan's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. Now, this idea of his throne, what, what, what is represented by a throne? Throne is a seat of power. And so here you have Pergamum. Oh, yeah. Satan, he's at work in your town where you live. So I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So, They've already had persecution as well, persecution to where people are being martyred for their faith. And they are doing what he just encouraged Smyrna to do. Antipas was faithful unto death. This idea of holding fast is, is, is the same. It's, it's often, in fact, it's most commonly translated seize. 
So when they came to the garden, they seized Jesus. They took him into custody. They arrested him. And so the idea, you, you lay hold on him, and you're not letting go. He's caught. He's staying caught. And the idea here is they, in the midst of persecution, they are still holding fast to the name. So are there some who are being faithful? Yes. But, so that's a commendation. There are some things that you're doing, you're doing well. But, I have a few things against you. Because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Now, this is going back to Numbers chapters 24 and 25. And you'll remember that Israel is going out. Balak is the king of Midian. He calls uh, for Balaam to come and curse Israel, remember? And he's supposed to curse them three times. He blesses them three times. But at the end, he says, listen, there's a way to get to these people intermarry with them. If you intermarry with them, and, by, and were the Jews supposed to intermarry with other people? No. Why not? It would pollute their society. So in other, in other words, when you, if, if I am a Jewish man and I marry a non-Jewish woman, are we worshiping the same God? No, we're not. And in fact, when I marry her, what is likely going to come into my house? Her gods, which aren't gods. A absolutely. I mean, this played out time and time and time again in Jewish history. God told them, don't do this. God told them why. This is what will happen if you do. And they said, you know what, you know, no, not us. We're better than that. And so they would go through and they would disobey and what would happen? What God said. Exactly what he said. So if you intermarry with them, you'll be able to turn them aside. That wasn't unique there either, was it? Think back to um, Jacob and the patriarch and, and his 12 sons before they went to Egypt. And they were dealing with, there was, some men, there was a man from Shechem who wanted to marry their sister. And what did the men from Shechem say? Yeah, if we let, if we get to marry the daughter, then what they have will be ours. And so here again, they weren't to intermarry. Were they to have anything to do with pagan worship? No. So therefore, were they to participate in eating things that had been sacrificed to pagan deities? No. They would have nothing to do with that. All right, there's an issue that I want to take some time with, but we can't do it today. 
So we'll pick it up next week because it's going to come up again. We'll catch it the next time it comes up here. That's the idea of, uh, wait a minute, time out. I thought that Paul talked about this issue specifically, that eating meat to sacrifice to idols was no big deal because they're not gods. And so therefore, there's no big deal with eating meat sacrificed to idols. And on one hand, that is absolutely true. On another hand, there's still a problem. What's the problem? It's the heart. Okay, it's an issue of conscience. And if it violates the conscience, then it's bad. And in fact, if me doing it is going to cause someone else's conscience to be affected, then out of love for that person, I should forego that so that I don't make them stumble, right? And so the idea here is not that it's, it's, it's not concentrating on the fact that you're eating the meat, it's the fact that you're violating conscience or you're causing somebody else to stumble. That's what makes this bad. In the acts of immorality, we don't run into that so much today, but temple prostitution was a big deal in the first century across the board. And so that, that's where you're getting into here, acts of immorality. And this is getting pushed. The, the Old Testament example of this is Balaam and Balak. The current day manifestation of this is a sect called the Nicolaitans. Now, exactly what they were teaching is not actually spelled out. The idea is, is that they are pushing a form of licentiousness, cheap grace. Because I'm going to be, because my sins are forgiven, then I can go through basically and live however I want without regard to holiness. We actually talked about this in the main service last week, right? So the idea here is that because I've got, you know, forgiveness and I've got grace, then I'm, I am the equivalent, I'm the spiritual equivalent of 007. I have license to sin. Bad juju. No bueno. In fact, if you want to look at Jude 4, we looked at this last Sunday, didn't we? In fact, again, Flip back over one page, and you'll probably get there. Jude 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, danger Will Robinson word, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. When you start seeing that I am denying Christ and I am ungodly, then I'd better be careful about trying to lay claim to be able to sin just because I can. In fact, is that evidence of redemption? That I choose to sin willingly, habitually? That violates everything when it talks about redemption, doesn't it? It violates everything. It's a sign, it's a manifestation that I'm not redeemed at all because I long to sin. 
if I'm redeemed, I have been set free from that. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Instead, I'm a slave to righteousness. And there's got to be at least a fight before I'm rolling over on a, on a habitual basis. So, what's the problem here for Pergamum? These folks have got some, not, and it's not just doctrinal issues, frankly. They've got some serious obedience problems going on here. They are not doing what they ought. You're holding on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. How did he refer to the Nicolaitans with Ephesus? You hate their works, and I what? I also hate them. So, what's the exhortation? Repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly. He didn't tell Ephesus quickly. He's telling Pergamum, Pergamum this is not going to delay. I'm going to come, and in fact, when I come, what's he going to do? I will come to you quickly. I'm coming quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, so, those that are holding on to this false doctrine, where do they find themselves? Do you want to be in a position where you're at war with God? I don't. For two reasons. Number one, he wins. Number two, what does that say about my spiritual condition? What does a person who is born again receive immediately? He has peace with God. One who is at enmity with God, one who is at war with God, is one who is not redeemed. And so again, dear one, if you find yourself thinking, I can do what I want because there's forgiveness, please stop in your tracks and realize where you stand because you're still under the wrath of God. You don't have peace with God. You're at war with him. And he wins. And it ends badly. And again, how is he making war with them? With his word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Who needs meat sacrificed to idols when I can have the hidden manna? When I can have something that's going to truly satisfy? And I will give him a white stone. Now, you look at this and you go, ah, what in the world is this? And, wish I had one. 
keys. A white stone. Culturally, when you had, remember how the victor would get the garland, the crown? He was also given a white stone. That was his ticket to the party to celebrate the victory. That was his get-in card. And in fact, that get-in card, the white stone, has a serial number. It's a special name. And the only one who knows it is the guy who has it. It's personalized. So, the one who overcomes, not only is he delivered from sin, he's delivered from death, he is delivered from the power of Satan, he is also delivered to the celebration that is awaiting when we receive our inheritance. And again, it's personal. I don't know if you ever think about this. There's coming a day when all of us who are redeemed, we're all going to see each other. And there's going to be a party like we've never seen before. And each and every one of us, God knows us personally. It's not in mass. It's each individual one. It's like God knows the number of hairs on my head. He doesn't have to count his heart as far now. But he knows each and every one. He knows each and every one of those who are his. Now that is pretty cool. That's beyond cool, frankly. Questions on Pergamum? just as well as five after. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have sacrificed yourself for us, that you have risen from the dead, that you're seated at the right hand of the Father now, interceding for us. Thank you for all that you've accomplished. Thank you for how personal it is that I'm not just a number each one here, each one of your children, we are personally known, personally purchased. Thank you for your goodness to us. Please forgive us for our failing you so often. Father, help us to be so enamored with you that we would speak of you often, that we would long to know you as you are, not as to how we would want to make you. Father, that we would know you aright, that we may worship you aright. Help us to live for you in such a way that would bring a smile to your face, that we would be faithful, that as you encouraged Smyrna, that you exhorted them, that we would be faithful even to death. You're worthy of that. Help us to be able to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.